Welcome to the second instalment of the Hints for Healing podcast, talks which hope to bring some insight and thoughts to the psychosocial recovery of young people and children who are survivors of torture and trauma. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of where I'm present, um, of the Cabrigal people of the Darug Nation, and let me extend my respects to elders past, present and emerging, and of course, similarly to any Aboriginal people who might listen. Again, my name is Sean Emorin, the team leader of the School Liaison Program at Starts, and today's guests are Pearl Fernandez and Yvette Ayalo. Both are clinical psychologists and have been collectively working with refugee survivors of trauma for over 30 years. Before we get into the talk, um, I simply want to say that I have a great esteem for both Pearl and Yvette, and uh, we in particular talk about therapeutic storytelling. Pearl um, is the author of Jungle Tracks, a storytelling approach which was designed with the hope the stories could be the medium to bypass normal defense mechanisms, um, engage feelings, and communicate in non-threatening ways. Um, It was assumed that these stories had the potential to touch and unleash innate healing forces in a sensitive, compassionate manner. And, um, of course, we touch on some Jungian concepts during our discussion. You know, what I love about Jungle Tracks, and I've been using it, um, of course, in my own clinical practice, is the discussion and questioning process, which invites the reader and the listener to make a connection with the main characters in the stories, which subsequently stimulates and provokes reflection and change. The stories Pearl has authored, Um, themselves mirror universal issues and struggle faced by many children and adolescents, particularly refugees, as they settle and make the transition to their new homes. By listening, reading the stories, unconscious processes um, of identification and internalization begin to work as the participants become more aware and gain insights into their emotional issues. Um, Also, the stories instill hope. They assist the reader um, or the listener to take effective control of their lives in a safe and a supportive environment. And these, um, it's often done in in group settings. Um, You know, just on a personal level, and and having known Pearl's work for some time, I'm deeply inspired by her reverence of the client's personal story as well. And I trust um, this shines through the way she talks about her work. I do hope you enjoy. Yeah, so so thank, thanks so much for the both of you for participating today in the Hints for Healing podcast. Um, I... I just want to start because, um, you know, I'm always intrigued as to how people came to this work, um, the journey per se, and 
So could you both possibly start with um, giving us a little background about yourselves, your roles, and some indication as to how you came to the place of working therapeutically with um, survivors of torture and trauma? And maybe we can start with you first, Pearl. Yeah. All right. Um, Look, for me, it goes back to 1998, where I was, um, I heard about STARTS through someone from Transcultural Mental Health Center. And um, actually, his name was Abd Malik. And he suggested that I, you know, connect with STARTS if I liked to work in a multicultural context. And and that's what brought me to STARTS. I was also looking for a place where I could, um, you know, I could find a supervisor, given that I had come from overseas and I needed to, uh, you know, to do a set number of hours to be registered as a psychologist. Mm. And so you so, were, yeah, okay, please continue, yeah? Yeah, so I kind of, you know, just approached uh, Starts and I spoke to Mariano. We didn't have a student clinic then, but, uh, you know, that's how Mariano kind of opened the doors and welcomed me, and um, that's how it all began. And so you, you came from India, did you say, um, and yes. you, you came as a, as a psychologist um, from, from India? Um, I was I was trained as a clinical psychologist way back in the 1980s. And uh, if anyone has been in India around that time, you know, we were very kind of dominated by a medical model. Mm. So I was a trained psychologist, but, um, you know, the chances of me kind of working in the area that I was passionate about were very limited. So I um, kind of... Uh, accidentally, uh, you know, got into marketing. Where I worked as a psychologist, but more, you know, kind of a market researcher. I didn't know that. Yeah. It's actually really important and interesting in in Pearl's background and what she brings to our work now because there's so many influences of that creative side to Mm. her that comes into this kind of work. Yeah. Actually, it was my brother who was in advertising. And he kind of probably saw a side of me that, you know, I was so focused on psychology, I didn't know existed. Mm. And uh, it was not, I mean, I wasn't doing, you know, market research as it's now called in in, in Australia, where you kind of do door-to-door knocking. But I was also, Mm. I was actually part of uh, what was then called uh, Hindustan Thompson Associates, which is, which was one of the biggest billers in terms of, you know, advertising in, in India. And that was 1980s, if you remember, or if anyone knows, you know, there was this economic kind of explosion of activity in India, where India began to open its doors to the outside world. Mm-hmm. And globalization had a completely different meaning. So it was a very exciting phase, uh, you know, in India's economy, where, you know, it, it was an explosion of, uh, you know, new products, new markets, and new investors. And I had to learn on the run. But I was actually, my, my colleagues there uh, were such, such a great bunch of people. They were mostly, you know, yes, we had the creative side and, um, you know, the creative department. But, uh, you know, the account executives were all from a marketing background. So I began to learn, you know, as I, every day I learned new things. I was literally, you know, I, I mean, I, I was fascinated by Kotler, 
you know, and by by learning all that marketing is about, where you're, you know, and I think if, if anything, it, it kind of uh, taught me about integrity, but it also taught me about multitasking. Mm-hmm. Because whatever you do, you actually needed to have done it yesterday. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It was exciting. It was so exciting. I, for for many years, I didn't even realize that I was, you know, actually in a completely different field because I was learning something new every day. Mm. What I find very interesting is how you, you know, you were talking about um, clinical psychology in India and how it was also dominated by, you know, the medical model. Um, but, you know, you have also thousands of years of history in India and also thousands of years of history of healing. And um, ha- can you maybe talk to that a little bit about how traditional um, indigenous concepts around healing are becoming more and more prevalent in, um, in clinical psychology today? Um, I think the time has come. Mm. Okay. And, and India is this, is this beautiful place where, you know, you can coexist and everyone has a right to say what they, I mean, it's a democracy in many ways in its true sense in every, every sphere of life, be it religion, you can have, you know, different religious groups kind of coexist. And, and actually embrace and adopt each other's beliefs to a certain extent. Mm. Um, and, and likewise, I think in the medical world, you had, you know, you had the Western medicine, but also you had a lot of, uh, you know, Ayurvedic remedies and yes. you know, so-called local remedies, you know, in, in place. And, and very often, uh, you know, for some, for some illnesses like, um, you know, we used to call it jaundice. Is it, mm. is it Hep C or Hep B, I think? Yeah. Mm. Um, we knew that if anyone got that, you never went to a Western practitioner. You just mm. went directly, you know, to the local, um, you know, uh, the local yeah. healer. Sorry? Healer, yeah. And, and they would give you, you know, herbs which were rolled into a little kind of, uh, and, and you did it like it was natural. It was almost a normal thing to do. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's horses for courses in that kind of a scenario. But uh, but it was okay to do, to actually try both forms of treatment mm. because um, you know the natural ones there was a lot of belief in them and I think this still is and mm. because they had so little side effects you know it was it was the perfectly natural thing normal thing to do I think at least that those are my memories I'm not kind of trying to overgeneralize but mm. those were my memories of what it was like growing up and often um, you know the elders in the family I remember my grandparents would probably believe in that a lot more mm-hmm. than they would in the, you know, in the, in the, in the kind of, uh, you know, Western medical, you know. Yes, of course. Yeah. Both were equally respected, believe me. Of course, of course. It's not that yeah. it's one better than the other, that competition doesn't exist mm. or didn't exist. And it's really interesting how you spent, you know, all those years working in marketing and then you came to Australia and then developed this passion to work with survivors of torture and trauma. I mean, did you have a previous interest in working with clients um, in India or was it something that, um, something that you observed in Australia, which was a particular need or just a, just an interest for you? I was always interested in different cultures. Mm. I grew up in Bombay, which is now Mumbai, which is a cradle of, you know, different languages, different cultural groups. You know, you, you can, I mean, I don't, re- I didn't realize how blessed we were 
in terms of that kind of a you know a mix of different um, you know of different uh, races and, and cultures mm. my background too i come from a little village in goa mm. and um, anyone who is aware of you know or has heard about goa knows that we are kind of a hybrid between you know the portuguese and and india mm. so you know i i i think at some subconscious level i was always intrigued you know by how cultures kind of um, you know intermingle and the impact it all has mm-hmm. because you know growing up i always grew up i felt i was a migrant yeah even though i was born in mumbai more because my parents you know had this yearning to go back to the village and to be back you know to their place where they called home my dad kind of just always wanted to you know to go back to his home because mm-hmm. he was born in that home yeah and he just yearned for it so i always grew up knowing what it is like to miss home mm-hmm. even though you know bombay was in many ways the only home i knew but to me you know i knew my roots i mean i yes, still believe yes. my roots i am goa yeah so i i always kind of was interested because of that in different cultures and languages because i kind of knew how you know my language that was spoken at home was very different to what i spoke in school what my other friends would speak and i kind mm-hmm. of began to pick up those nuances mm-hmm. you know i was very little and um, you know goa being such a peaceful beautiful place we we had an influx of refugees coming from kashmir and even from from punjab that was more later but but i knew what it was like to mm-hmm. to be once home because we you know we would sometimes have conversations with them on the beaches because you know they kind of would flock to where tourists were and some of them would tell us their stories i didn't expect it to be have such a big impact on me but but apparently it did and then i was always exposed to stories of the partition you know mm. because india and pakistan had a very bloody you know mm. division in two countries and and that kind of has in many ways i think that's something it happened before i was born mm. but i think mm. the hangover you know in my generation there was a bit of a hangover about about you know what um, refugee trauma is all about yeah mm. so maybe look i don't know it's very hard for me to to kind of say what influenced it but but when i came to to start so when i began to you know to listen to stories of survival and stories of horror uh you know it kind of seemed to fall in place i don't think i'd say i came to start only because of the refugee experience i think it was more the more the multicultural flavor mm-hmm. and and uh, you know starts it attracted me to to work there but then listening to uh, you know to to stories of clients i felt a commitment i felt like this is you know this is kind of where i i really would be able to enjoy using my skills because by the time i mean coming to australia in many ways was good for me because it helped me get off the roller coaster and basically ask myself you know actually did you train to be in marketing i know it was a great ride it was so beautiful and so fantastic and you meet met such exciting you know innovative people but is that really what you know the purpose of your life is about mm. So I took a 5 year break between you know or maybe it was 7 actually I don't I think it was a 7 year break with Jobs but that was enough time for me to kind of reconnect with myself you know after being a mother and realizing like look if there's something I want to leave behind you know it would probably more you know be about connecting back to psychology yeah yeah thanks for that Pearl. that was that was really quite fascinating yeah <laughs> it's 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 interesting to see that the journey that the people take and and how 
you know, we, we come back to things and, yeah. you know, you, you're mentioning that, you know, you grew up hearing stories of the partition and of people from Kashmir coming in. And, the, you know, I think that's probably also reflective of the work that you do now and the reverence that you, you know, that, that you have yeah. with people's individual tales. Um, and maybe that might be one of the reasons as to why when you came to Australia yeah. that, that there was a, a drawing towards that particular work. Yeah. listening to you reflect on what I said, you know, I think it is quite interesting that I leave out perhaps the most important journey. And that is, you know, the fact that uh, Goa was liberated from the Portuguese. Mm. And that again, you know, in many ways, you know, that's very significant. That's very significant. Because I had family members who were in that freedom struggle. Mm. Yeah. And because, you know, the, the story of, well, at least the, I mean, because what, India has so many thousands of years, but at least in, in more modern history, um, it's so impacted by systemic state-sponsored terrorism and because of, you know, different refugee influxes. So maybe it was something that, that resonated with you quite deeply. Hmm. And how about yourself, Yvette? Um, maybe yeah. you might like to give us a bit of a, a, an indication of how you came to this work. Definitely not the long, um, interesting story of Pearl. I don't have nearly as much um, background as her, but I guess I've always come to, well, I guess I came to this work through my love of reading, actually. When I think about this, um, I think it was always um, all the stories I'd read. I'd just been so fascinated by the complexity of the characters and the multiple um, perspectives and just, you know, how how rich each person would be. And I think that's what led me to psychology. And I was doing politics at the same time. And the blending of the politics and the psychology together just naturally led to, well, obviously, I want to work with torture and trauma survivors. <laughs> there was no question. It was like, okay, that's, that's what I'm most interested in. That's what I'm really passionate about. And and those were the stories that drew me the most. So that's kind of how I ended up in starts. And I think it was also after I took um, I took Pearl's training on jungle tracks, actually, which also kind of put all of those pieces together for me. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay. We've got stories. We've got, you know, the, the issues that I'm most interested in. And this is a way I could really work in that psychology field as well. Right. Yeah. Well, given given that you've just mentioned jungle tracks, um, Pearl, w- would you like to give us a bit of a an introduction um, in terms of what jungle jungle tracks is, who it targets, um, and and how and when when did you come up with this intervention? Um, I began to think along the lines of using stories to work with young children and adolescents back in 2002. And this was when um, and I was working with the Afghan unaccompanied minors on temporary protection visa. And what I realized and learned from them was that you know, they found it easier uh, to, to speak about themselves mm-hmm. uh, through metaphors. Yeah. And that's what stories are all about. And, and 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 I think our whole assessment procedures at that time were around uh, you know question and answers, where you know we had to ask clients directly about trauma, uh, and uh, and that is more because you know 
for obvious reasons. You know, that's how you know, psychology is and that's how assessments are used. And we were kind of, um, you know, finding that, you know, understandably, uh, it was very challenging for young people who are tr- so traumatized mm-hmm. to be able to, to verbalize or, you know, or share their stories because for them it's so traumatizing that perhaps they cannot even think about it. So for them to be really, you know, um, willing to, to, to kind of tell you details about that trauma is, is not easy. And then around 2003, uh, 2003, we began to, you know, have um, a number of uh, families from different parts of Africa, predominantly Sudan, you know, enter Australia on the humanitarian, um, you know, intake. The integrated humanitarian IHSS, as it used to be called. Um, now, this kind of was a dramatic shift in our clan population from being single men to families. Mm. And these were, you know, kind of average size of the family would have been around eight or nine children with a single mom, yeah. generally. Um, at least initially, when, you know, the, children, the, the families began to arrive. However, we were not, you know, our referrals were not reflecting this pattern. We were having a few, you know, uh, single parents referred to the to the program to that early intervention program, but by and large, um, you know, the young people were were not being seen. We had just one, um, you know, child and adolescent counselor in both both our teams. So our teams we had two teams in Auburn and Liverpool, and we had only one early child, uh, sorry, uh, child and adolescent counselor, you know, serving the entire so providing services across New South Wales. And um, what we realized was happening then was that a lot of the schools, you know, both primary and senior schools, were beginning to uh, to kind of um, call starts, asking for assistance, because often they were dealing with situations that had reached a crisis point. Mm. And the other, the other, you know, kind of. Uh, the other kind of, um, you know, noticeable happening at that time was that a lot of the calls were also coming in, not from the public schools, but from the private uh, Catholic schools in the area, because the young, you know, the, the young children or, or, you know, the, a lot of the families mm-hmm. uh, believed coming from Africa that, um, you know, the Catholic school or the private schools were the ones which offered a better education to their children. Mm-hmm. So there was preference at that time to enroll their children in private schools. Yeah. So the private schools at that point had not seen many refugees, maybe. Although mm-hmm. they had a lot of, you know, they had a kind of history of working with uh, with refugees overseas. Mm-hmm. But the actual intake of refugees, uh, I mean, most the IECs, there were there were very few IECs in the Catholic system. Mm-hmm. There was one Granville, I believe, and and there was another one probably towards Petersham. But the whole area, the whole diocese of Sydney, of Parramatta, were just serviced by one IEC. You know, so that kind of was Blue Mountains, Penrith, all those, uh, you know, all those areas, all those parishes had just one IEC in um, in New South Wales. And likewise, you know, Sydney, the the whole and all the parishes that belong to Sydney just had one in, 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 in New Newington or no, Petersham, I think. So anyway. Um, one thing led to the other, and uh, you know, often when um, the police were called in because a young child had threatened to, you know, to bring his father's gun and blow a teacher's head up, you know, was was seen as, oh my gosh, we, I mean, it, it is quite frightening to 
to you know to be able to deal with that situation or when you know when there, there was tension between ethnic groups when when parents of one particular ethnic group refused to send their children to the school unless you know the boy from africa was so angry and so kind of uh, you know violent in in the schoolyard uh, was you know was expelled from the school and uh, you know there was very little we could offer at that point in time once you know the children had actually been given detention mm-hmm. often you know as most schools now you know i think then to agree that you know, rather than time out the child needed to be to be kind of kept in school and uh, you know and, and maybe understood in a different way so that uh, yeah. change could take place so um, when when all this was happening we we kind of um, felt there was a need to do something else because they you know the children were being taken to anger management programs and um, you know don't get me wrong but a lot of the you know programs were kind of um, you know based on cbt like principles mm-hmm. and the reality is that uh, you know it's not it's not i mean you cannot really uh, you know target cognitive areas when mm-hmm. really the child feels unsafe and threatened you need to kind of go down to a more basic and more deeper level right mm-hmm. yeah and uh, and when i kind of you know began to think about it a bit more i said you know the best way to engage with these children was through stories and i kind of discussed it with one of the ic uh, head teachers yeah and and you know saying look this is something that we can pilot and it's more going to be in a kind of a preventative framework you know to kind of help um because the other issue that was you know that was quite uh, quite obvious was that even um, you know even the teaching staff and the counselors are finding it so hard to engage with these children even with the use of interpreters and and they kind of said it's not teachers aid the presence or the absence that's making it hard to connect with these children you know we just don't seem to be able to you know to kind of continue a conversation with them you know mm-hmm. often they would you know kind of get very angry or you know one one teacher said that the child just went under the desk and sat there and refused to come out mm-hmm. so you know it wasn't it was more than just language that they needed to you know to connect and communicate with these children i you know clearly remember you know one one young teacher tell me from an IC that um, look when when the boy is angry he, he's he's towering over you he's over 6 feet high and you know his eyes go red and mm. there's so much anger what, how how do you expect me to you know to to even be able to to talk to him when he's in that kind of frame of mind because mm. he's obviously not listening yeah so you know that's why we we kind of turned to stories and um i mean it's it's hard to believe but the stories were literally written on the run yeah from one week to another yeah <laughs> so i mean given given that they they were written on the run do you have you ever reflected on as to whether there were a, a conscious or unconscious process in terms of coming up with coming up with these stories and do you think that it might have been reflective of similar stories in your own life and upbringing or classic jungian archetypal stories What, what, could, what do you think? <laughs> I think it's a mix of everything. Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I, I really would perhaps like to reflect one day and you know, think about how it all started. But I, I mean, I like to think you know, that necessity is the mother of invention. Mm. And for me, it was like, oh, I just had to go back and, you know, and, and kind of produce something in a mm. form. Because I, I think 
I, I began to feel that the children were depending on me to, to deliver. And, and that's the worst thing that you can, you know, for a therapist to be in. And, uh, and, and more because I had, you know, Yvette wasn't there yet. She was still growing up, as she told me later. <laughs> but, uh, but I, I mean, I had to do it literally, you know, uh, like talking to myself yeah. and, uh, and, and trying to, um, you know, trying to kind of figure out, you know, I wasn't trying to be smart. I wasn't trying to be, you know, super innovative. All I wanted to do was, you know, how do I address what the group presented me with in, mm. in, you know, in, in that week? Yeah, and it was just the therapist in me saying, okay, you know, this is my understanding. And, you know, keeping it as broad as possible, giving it, you know, giving, giving the, the young people the chance to really, you know, take that material and then follow follow it up with their own issues. Mm-hmm. So, so trying not to be highly specific, but at the same time, you know, trying very hard not to scare them away. Yeah. You know, to, to kind of uh, kind of hit things head on. Mm. To be to be kind of very soft and then to kind of soft pedal really and, and see where that led. So based on that, you came up with a series of stories that were relatable to young people at that time. Yes. Yeah. There and was what, no hmm. sorry, there was no plan that look, I'm going to target grief, this you know, racism, anger, hmm. no plan at all. Hmm. I'm so glad I did it that way, actually, thinking back. It was only at the end of that and I said, Wow, look, I've actually covered all these issues. But I didn't I didn't start off that way. Hmm. So that, that that probably answers some of the question in terms of it being an unconscious process. Yeah. potentially yeah would you call that unconscious (laughs) yeah i I think um i think the stories are so relevant because um maybe yeah because you allowed for the diversity of experience Mm -hmm. in them you weren't just saying okay this is what we're talking about but they're really relatable because they deal with multiple issues um in a really realistic way through animals Through some of the stories, but they're not—they're um, not so generic. Whereas we see some other stories around that are maybe a little bit too direct in in that issue. Then maybe they're just about grief, and they kind of miss um, everything else that's happening in that interaction. Whereas these stories um, have so many areas to explore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and give, give us give us an example of of one of the stories. Um, well. <laughs> I should probably disclose that uh, I'm trained in jungle tracks and I often use it in, <laughs> in my own therapeutic work, but for other people who might be listening. Um, look, um, they say you can't have favorites, but, um, you know, Colors of the Wind has turned out to be my favorite, more because I find that, uh, you know, if you, are, if you have only one story to read to a child, the fact that it has, you know, so many different nuances and has so many different, um, you know, kind of, uh, areas that can be touched on, especially if you're working with refugees, you know, that's the one to go with. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so it, it kind of, um, I mean, I had to use, um, some, some, some people did ask me, why did you choose monkey? And, and I kind of turned around and said, why not, you know? Um, but but I, didn't, I didn't realize that, uh, you know, there are negative connotations attached to a monkey. For me, it is, you know, the, a monkey is um, is actually uh, a species that is probably closest related to the human being, you know, 
and and also because I come from a country where you know monkeys can be a pest because they are. You know, if you've ever been to India and you've seen the you know the monkeys run around the temples and you know and other places, you 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 know what I mean. Uh, I come from Goa, and you know our monkeys always raided my mango trees when they were you know just ripe and you know <laughs> probably a day away from us picking them, but we were too late. You know the best mangoes were always taken, yes. but. Uh, but but at the same time they're also you know they're also kind of uh, you know I mean there's this Hanuman the, the monkey god they're also respected so so I mean it's it's part of you know good and bad it's part of you know uh, so I, I don't have any negative uh, kind of uh, you know associations with monkey and I just thought um, that my daughter would find it easy to draw a monkey because my daughter is still has straight <laughs> so I was I, mean, I was being practical. And <laughs> <laughs> so it became a, a family thing with your with your daughter as the illustrator as well. I mean, I mean, not, I I kind of regret using my daughter in that sense. I mean, I knew she was talented and she kind of would be able to do it. But I was so, you know, I was kind of, I felt the pressure of wanting to to reach out to these to this young client group and and reach out in a non-threatening way. And whatever I had seen, you know. Illustrated whatever books I had seen, one didn't really capture the refugee issues, but because it, they were, you know, the illustrator was an adult. You know, when you kind of begin to think about death or you begin to think about war, you know, the ad- adult's perspective of horror comes through. Yes, and yes. I don't, I don't mean to be rude, but because of that, you kind of tend to turn away. You tend to turn away because it reminds you of, you know, of uh, of certain. Uh, Possibly certain experiences which are not so pleasant mm. uh, in, in too direct a way. You know, mm-hmm. but if you, if you kind of present something to a client population that's already, already like on, on, you know, on high alert, you know, that, that could kind of take a different turn. Mm-hmm. But if you present something which is, uh, which, is, which is real, but at the same time not scary, mm-hmm. you know, it's easier for them to deal with. And maybe because monkeys are used, it's also easier for them to, to you know, see the similarities with, with human beings. Yeah, wow. I don't know, I think I've gone off the track. No, no, I haven't. That was, <laughs> that, that was fantastic. Yeah. You're going to tell us the story, Pal. Yeah. Oh, dear. Tell us Me- the the story. Yeah. It's about, yeah. a, young, it's about so. a young family whose, whose father is um, is kind of one of the leaders and is, um, is kind of misunderstood. And, uh, you know, because of a series of events, is separated from the family. That was, you know, the dominant story of what a lot of the young children were actually bringing when they, when they came, uh, you know, when they came to, to the group. Um, they, were, they were bringing issues about, you know, being separated from their parents because uh, a lot of them actually were, you know, were from single, um, uh, you know, single parent families. Mm-hmm. Uh, they mm-hmm. didn't know what had really happened to their father. Some of them, you know, then later told us how brutally the father had been killed or attacked or murdered. Mm. Uh, but a lot of them were also facing racism. So before, you know, um, I mean, I kind of touched on racism very softly, you know, in a, in a, in a kind of fun way. In, uh, I, mean, I wouldn't say fun, but in a light way, where the animals are not happy with the way they are. And there is this little story that, you know, or a little kind of... Um, you know, kind of uh, chapter, I'd say, where, you know, where we kind of tried to deal with it. Because initially, you know, that, that was something that came out 
came out in the groups very softly. Um, and, and kind of through that, you know, we, um, I mean, the, the, the separation story and the story of, uh, of disagreement is introduced. But yes, then yes. also, you know, the, the child not knowing what happened to them and fleeing with mom and another young, young sibling. And the whole journey through the jungle is about how, you know, they have been helped. And, and, and I think what was interesting was how even without asking the children to share their stories, they began to share, you know, their journey to Australia or, or their journey to a safe place. You know, about all, um, you know, the anecdotes we have heard about how meaningful, you know, already helpful people have tried to help them, but didn't really know how to help them. Mm. There's the incident where, you know, the elephant offers sugarcane to the little monkey, but not knowing that, hang on, monkeys don't eat sugarcane. Yes. They would rather eat a peanut or, or something else, you know. And um, yeah, so there's little things. And, 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 you know, it's interesting how children had so much to share about how, you know, how they were, um, you know, how they were kind of misunderstood, but also mm-hmm. how they were not given the help that we really need, but they were too polite to say no and, yeah. uh, and actually accept it. But also about then, you know, making friends and how, you know, mom would say, okay, you can't trust somebody. You can't trust the other one. You know, and, and this is often what happened. And, and often, you know, children were actually told not to share with staff counselors or anyone the reality of their lives. And, and that, that gave to children the opportunity to, to kind of unload that burden. And for the group then to kind of, you know, reflect on it and say, I mean, should we speak or should we not speak? Mm-hmm. And there was this lovely group discussion about, you know, uh, who we can trust and, and why it is that mom is so, so kind of uh, protective of us. Um, then, you know, and then finally, I think that's the, you know, that's the high point, that's the climax of the book, or mm-hmm. the story really, where, uh, you know, the monkey Charlie, the young monkey Charlie learns that his father is not going to come back. Mm-hmm. Now he is, uh, you know, he's very tired about, you know, how he learns to find his peace. Yeah. Because there was nothing available at that point in time that would be, you know, that would be useful for counselors to, to, to talk to children about the loss of a parent. Yeah. It is very hard to talk that, to that about adults at any level, at any age, uh, you know, age, any age group finds it hard to talk about, you know, the death of a parent. But, yeah. uh, you know, to, to kind of, uh, you know, and, and here again, because it's done through a, a story, you know, of the uncle, uh, you know, it's kind of a communication or a conversation between uncle and nephew. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it kind of, in many ways, or oh, an elder and the child, it, it, it is seen as safe. So if the child, and, and we could see that happen in our groups. You now some children would actually turn around and, you know, I mean, face their backs with group and they were allowed to do it. And, and some would, would continue to talk about, you know, one ch- child shared the story of how, you know, he, he dug a hole in the ground with his bare hands and buried his grandfather. And, and there were many, many, you know, stories that came, came that were shared. Um, yeah, so so that kind of gave uh, gave children and young people the license yeah. to uh, to talk about, uh, you know, the loss of close family members, mm. but not just talk about it. To go a step beyond, and then mm. you know, and then kind of uh, sow the seeds of understanding grief. Yes, in in a in a very um, you know, in a very kind of uh, easy to understand format, mm. and and then you know, then the children could could take it to the next step. I mean, in the training, I I kind of always share the story of of, and this was something that I found very enlightening. Um, you know, 
way back in 2004 or 2005, there was uh, you know, uh, a young, um, young man from Sudan who, who kind of was uh, unfortunately uh, you know, murdered on the streets of Auburn. And before he, the day before he died, he enrolled his child in the, in the school and that child appeared, you know, happened to take part in, in jungle tracks. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was, it was a sudden kind of loss. It was quite brutal. Um, so the family had not really had a chance, maybe. Mom was, was not doing too well to give this young boy the space to, to share his, you know, to kind of explain to him and help him understand what had happened. Um, the school knew that, and, and the teachers you know, who were running the group with me also knew that. And, um, and, to, and to us, we, we, were, we were kind of quite amazed and didn't really know how the boy would react. But, uh, you know, we just took a pause because often we pause, and the boy felt it was the right moment to begin to talk about the loss of his father. He had never done that before. And, uh, you know, just giving him that space made it uh, you know, so much more meaningful for him. So he began to talk and, and then he continued to share his experience when he went back to the classroom. And what we felt then was the best thing to do was to support the teacher because the teacher had a good relationship with the young boy, mm. uh, you know, to, to kind of uh, give her, you know, some kind of support to, to, to help the boy share and continue, you know, to talk about the passing of his father. Yeah, okay, he came back to the next, you know, to the next, to the to the session the next week. So that was a powerful experience, and to me, it's it's also, I mean, the other important issue about this, uh, you know, this young boy was that he was actually only four years old. Mm-hmm. We, we thought he was five plus, but he was actually four because, you know, being born in a refugee camp, the parents didn't have the the documentation about his exact date of birth. And later they found out that he was actually in an early star where he had joined school when he was four and not five. Mm. So, you know, for a young boy who was, you know, four, to be able to connect with the story and um, kind of, you know, share his experiences uh, was, was quite powerful for me. It really touched me. Yeah. Uh, it also touched me because the, the school reported that after that session, after the series, he actually became a lot more open in school and was able to participate in class activities and in schoolwork in a more wholeheartedly. So, you know, so that had, you know, that had a wonderful kind of um, impact on this little boy. Mm. It's pretty remarkable how just in, in one book that, that is, you know, no longer than 35 pages, that it can cover issues such as home and belonging. It can cover issues such as, um, um, justice, it covers issues such as um, racism and xenophobia, it covers issues such as um, the loss of home, um, yes. it, it, it covers the refugee journey, which can be arduous, it then recovers and then covers finding a new place, it also covers people who might not necessarily be able to um, support, they, they might be very well-meaning, but they, they they might not be able to provide the support that people actually need. And then it also covers um, grief and loss issues and coming to terms and being able to process that. Mm. It's incredible. And, and using animals as a way to, as, as a metaphor um, through, you know, through storytelling. And, you know, one of the things that really influenced me um, 
you know, is particularly around Jungian psychology and the the importance of metaphor, but but also the importance of the psyche's self healing mechanism. Um, is this something that you feel that these stories really draw upon and creating a safe space for young people to ex- express in a safe way for them to be empowered to, you know, to, to tap in to their own self-healing mechanism? Definitely. Mm. Definitely. And, you know, this is what I kind of, you know, try to share with facilitators who, who train for jungle tracks that, um, you know, you've got to kind of literally take the back seat and, yeah. and not feel responsible, you know, to bring about change. Because in, in all in all real in all honesty, you know, just being there and by your presence, you give the space for, you know, this psyche that you refer to. I I like to call it collective unconscious, you know. Mm, the power yes. of the collective unconscious to kick in. And you know, once that kicks in, you know, um, human beings heal. You know, mm. has the innate capacity to, for self-healing. Yes. And, and, and I mean, if you look at it at, at a different level, you know, yeah. that's the way it works, I think. Mm. I don't know how it works, let's be honest. But, yeah. Um, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't, that, isn't that beautiful, though? I mean, as a, as a professional, um, sometimes we, we tend to assert this control or we, we, we try to know why things work and we need to know everything and, but I, I, I find I find that process, the process of self-healing, so empowering for an individual who is healing from trauma. Um, that it's, you just like play, say, a facilitator role in people's own healing, and in the end, they can say, "Well, this is the work that I did." You know, oh, I'm always really inspired by that. And, and let's be honest: what do we really know? What it's like to be them as well. So. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And Pearl, you were mentioning um, in relations to, uh, you know, the, the um, training that you provide to, to staff who would be interested in um, implementing jungle tracks. Who is it predominantly um, targeted towards? Is it targeted towards counsellors? Who, who, who would be the best fit to such? Look, I've co-facilitated with anyone who was interested and willing to go on this journey with me. As long as they understand, you know, the basic thing that healing is not in their hands and neither is, um, you know, is it important for clients to begin to talk about themselves when they're not ready to. Mm. You know, just to kind of, um, you know, share a story if they are willing to, you know, just... Uh, go along with the flow and um, and be present in a mindful way you know mm. with the client group I think that's all that that is needed really and but but at the same time an awareness that it's quite powerful you know that it is a story which has been written uh, you know to try and facilitate a particular process within a, a particular client group mm. which is a very vulnerable client group yeah so you know so I've kind of trained, uh, I wouldn't say trained because, you know, that kind of has a different connotation. But I've kind of shared the approach with, you know, with therapists, with psychologists, social workers, counsellors, you know, with teachers' aides, you know, with with almost everybody. 
students who come to staffs. Would you like to say something about that, Yvette? Because you've also been involved in some of the training. Yeah, no, I just I agree with you that it, I agree exactly with what you're saying. It's just about whoever's willing to, to provide the space, really, um, and just understands that it is about being there in the story without necessarily directing anywhere, but just actually reflecting together on that. And I think that that's and and the beautiful thing about this approach, as you said, was it was designed to be universal. That you don't have to be um, a psychologist to understand how this works. It's something that every culture has used throughout history and throughout time. So we all have this ability within us. And and you think that's one of the main reasons as to why it's relevant to young people, and why it has such power. Yeah is because it has evolutionary roots, it has historical roots in our, our, our ability to narrativize our, our stories and, and into particular um, archetypal stories, you could say. Yeah, it's natural. Mm. It's a natural developmental way of learning about the world, you know, through story. And, yeah, and the same can be said um, in our ability to heal through story as mm. well. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. I guess I've just got one last question, um, and I guess it's it's in relations to you know some of the things that you're talking about in about you know um, some of the you know the, the the difficult stories that you might hear um, mm-hmm. amongst the clients that you're working with, and I know that you're you're you both do a lot of work, particularly around self care um, and working with potentially counsellors, teachers and others around mitigating the impact of vicarious traumatisation. Um, what do you think um, people who implement a program like this should be particularly aware of? Um, considering the, the potentially negative impact sometimes that we might experience, you know, in, in hearing, in hearing stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the important thing to to kind of understand is that whilst it's a, you know it's relatively simple and straightforward, it's also very powerful. Mm. And uh, you know because it is powerful, uh, there are areas of um, you know I mean just the the level of sharing that sometimes occurs is quite deep, mm. and uh, and you may not be prepared for that, but um, you know to to and 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 I, I, the reason I speak that is because, you know, whilst some children might share, there are many children who may not talk. But at the same time, um, you know, it's the unconscious kind of uh, exchange that occurs in the group Mm. that is very powerful. I don't have a name for it, but all I can say is that almost every group that we ran, um, you know, even though we had, you know, sometimes retired pastoral care workers who had, you know, 35 plus years experience working in, you know, in, in this field and, you know, being in very compassionate roles mm-hmm. uh, would, would kind of uh, not hesitate to, to say that they felt very exhausted and tired. Mm-hmm. You know, to, so, so to be aware of that, and, and I think it was important that we could actually share that. Because, you know, it's, it's, I mean, you don't have to go and thinking, oh, yeah, I'm just going to read a story. 
while yes you are you know there's a lot more that that can happen if you create the space and you allow yourself to to experience it mm. because um, you know there is something about working with children and young people that is very uh, very kind of powerful um it is the intense level of probably you know powerlessness that you can sense but also because um you know um, young people say things in a different way and and that has leaves an impact on them you know what they're saying is very is very real um and you know this whole this whole concept of empathy you know takes a takes a different it kind of goes to a different level when you're working with with the younger age group because some of them may not be articulate enough to to verbalize their feelings but you know you 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 pick it up you pick it up at a different level and mm-hmm. it's it's important to be able to share that with someone even means you know i'm tired and and this is you know this is really um, you know very intense it is is a good beginning mm-hmm. you know so i mean it's what what i'd like ideally is to you know is to have co-facilitate to have two people running the group mm-hmm. sometimes i know it's not possible but um, you know to at least have a space where you can you know, i mean what we call supervision at starts mm-hmm. where you can kind of go to someone else and, and share what what you yeah, mm. yeah. i would support that yeah just having someone to help you hold that mm. and i like how much you pointed out that it's about the sharing connection. Well, I'd like to thank you both for um for talking me um you know talking with me today. Um you know if anyone is interested in um finding a little bit more about Jungle Tracks, I'll be putting it in the show notes and um there's also a lot of information um around um the the use of therapeutic storytelling that can be found with you know from peer reviewed um articles and i believive that pearl and yvette you you've just or you're, you you will be um publishing a a journal article on jungle tracks and um, and that will be coming out very soon am i correct hopefully yes <laughs> should be okay We'd like to thank you Sean for your interest in jungle tracks you know and um recognizing you know that uh, storytelling is so important mm-hmm. because we all have a story to to tell and you know every story is important Absolutely yeah well it's been my absolute pleasure so thank you to the both of you So thanks everyone for listening in today. If you'd like, please share with your friends or others who might benefit. It should be said that Hints for Healing is on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. And of course, if you'd like to find out further information on the work we do at Starts and for some other resources, please go to www.startsts.org.au www.starts.org dot a u until next time Bye.